Welcome to the latest episode of the CFA UK In Conversation podcast. I'm Maha Khan Phillips, editor of Professional Investor at CFA UK. This is a show for investment professionals focusing on a whole manner of topics and interesting insights that are impacting the profession today. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the world of active and passive management. Are active managers going to come into their own in the current market landscape, or will we continue to see passive growth? Is the whole active versus passive debate redundant anyway? And what are some of the key considerations for asset allocators? To discuss some of these themes, I'm truly delighted today to be joined by industry veteran Marie Zanis, Head of Asset Management in EMEA for Northern Trust Asset Management. Marie is responsible for the end-to-end asset management business in the region, including strategy, governance, operations, portfolio management, product business development, and talent. She also sits on a number of Northern Trust Fund business boards and serves on several executive, business, and risk committees globally for Northern Trust Asset Management. She is also both the chairman of the Risk Audit and Finance Committee and a member of the Remuneration Committee of the Investment Association. As a recognized industry leader and media contributor, Marie has been celebrated twice as among Financial News' 100 Most Influential Women in Finance. Welcome, Marie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, Maha. Can I start by asking you to set the scene for the type of investment landscape that we're facing today? What are some of the investment challenges and some of the macroeconomic drivers that are impacting and facing asset managers? Of course, there's a lot going on. There is certainly challenge. If you consider the geopolitical circumstance, politics, divergence in regulation, and look at our own capital market assumptions, we talk about some of these themes persisting. We have gone through the pandemic to the endemic, globalization to regionalization. And the reality is, is investors must navigate a challenging global economy with looking at high debt and unfavorable demographics. So we would say this is a theme of slow transitions and slow transitions right now are likely to lead to slow growth. Not a great environment out there. Definitely challenges ahead. Yes. And investors are looking for clarity and ensuring that they have their portfolio shored up for what they need to do and how to better achieve their outcomes. So let's put that in the context of active and passive management. So in volatile times, it's sometimes assumed that active management comes into its own. But the reality of what we've seen is that it's been a mixed bag for active managers, particularly over the last year. Is the current climate one where active management should be making its case? There's a critical role for both in portfolio management. And as you can see, investors move through different market cycles and they make decisions on both. You hear things like passive strategies tended to be more desirable when the economy may be volatile or weakening, or people seek active strategies but go for passive price. So Uh, The reality is, is you need both. And frankly, a good active manager is worth her weight in gold. I guess one of the key issues is finding that good active manager, right? Absolutely. And and you have experience of investing across the array of products and strategy and, and approaches. And I wonder also about that blurring of the line between active and passive management. So is that still a binary sort of active and passive um, debate? Or is that a sort of tired way of looking at, at, at the case? I mean, I think we've seen, for example, some investors use index funds to pursue an active strategy. Yeah, I, I don't think there's really a debate. It's more like which cutlery I'm going to use at the dinner table. And so you have different tools for different foods. The debate 
maybe less about one or the other, but how to use and when to use both in a portfolio. We often get asked about an area we specialize in, to your point, um, particularly around factors, where we can actively design a portfolio with passive implementation. And we see that um, factors in, in general, the premia, capturing the premia is largely a behavioral effort. You know, for example, investors are looking for short run profits where there's bid up the price of high volatility stocks, for example. But from the behavioral aspect, you also want to mitigate herd mentality of implementation of that in your portfolio. So you want to get rid of those behavioral biases. Um, and that's why they want to actively design, but passively manage. So it gets to a sweet spot of where they want to be on price and exposure. And we see that most frequently in the institutional space here. Actively design and passively manage. That's a, that's a great way of looking at it. Um, but that's quite a challenging thing to do, isn't it? To eliminate behavioral bias. Yes, I mean, and that passive implementation or dispassionate implementation enables you to achieve your goals so that you don't buy into hanging on to timing a little bit longer. You really do get to implement your um, outcome. That's really interesting. Thank you. So where does that leave investors when they're making the decision about choosing active versus passive or how they are going to actively design a portfolio? So, in fact, we just had on this subject, uh, we had a, a client focus group. And let me preface this by saying, you know, as a $1.2 trillion investment manager, we have, as I said, active and passive products. We're the fourth largest indexer globally. And that actively designed and passively implemented uh, um, item, let me break that down a little bit further. First of all, there's benefit to both. It depends on a number of items, things like your time horizon, your strategy, who's implementing the strategy, the level of transparency. And on this very subject, I was just having a conversation with a client about how they look at time horizon. So one was saying that some desire their strategies to have quick return and immediate alpha. They have a shorter time horizon. They want to articulate uh, um, that during a market cycle, they want to choose a passive or active manager because they can look to outperform. And especially when using an active manager, they would view that that asset class is in favor and they want to take a larger bet. And again, it goes back to your point, the skill, finding out the skill and the ability of that manager is critically important. Um, most frequently, though, we have large institutions that believe that they need to manage in perpetuity. And the philosophy for them is reversion to the means over time. So they buy into beliefs, like if you look at SPIVA, the S&P index versus active report that considers survivorship, it shows that passive tends to outperform active. So when you're managing over a longer time horizon, they believe, that's what they've articulated to us, they believe that that dispassionate, dispassionate implementation of their strategy without the risk of having a portfolio manager having behavioral bias creeping into the, the, the strategy and messing with the timing is a better way to implement. Then there's also transparency. Passively implemented strategies are very popular with those who want instant transparency on holdings. And so we see this a lot, for example, like with ETFs. So depending on the strategy and manager, an active strategy can be non-transparent and the holdings can have delay at to uh, after the reporting period. 
And especially in a volatile market where there's concern on who has what exposure, that may or may not be attractive depending on what they want in the portfolio. So there is some for all, but again, you can see with those lenses of time horizon, transparency needs, exposure, immediate exposure needs, that can play in who you choose and when. That's really interesting. And and so many points there, as you say, time horizon, transparency and, and needs, and also remembering that ultimately there are end users or end, uh, you know, people retiring on, on these assets. And if I look, for example, to the period of time, like the decade of the 1970s, where you ended up, if you had invested actively over that period, arguably not that much better off at the end, um, it, it puts things into a different context as well, right? All these, all, all these needs are, are interesting and and uh, as you say, fork and knife and what, what, what implements you need to use with your, with your meal. Yes, yes. So hopefully the, the, the strategy comes together and the portfolio and, and often dynamic, you know, changes through the market cycle and the needs. But we see this across, um, you know, uh, particularly during volatile times, investors rethinking their strategy. And are they ready to um, have the investment they need in place to manage through that? It's a challenging thing to, to achieve, I guess. Yes. So how can investors in this, these kind of markets ensure that they're compensated for the risks that they're taking? Ooh, now this is a great question. And core to what we believe as investors, we believe that investors should be paid for the risks that they take in all markets. And people do want to get paid for the risks. But if we think back to basics, and I, I want to take us a step back uh, on this particular uh, question, the capital asset pricing model shows that beta explains historically about 70 to 75% of returns. So if you're looking to capture the most of your returns on a portfolio, you want to be very sharp, use the right tools in the portfolio. And then we saw in 1992, Eugene Fama and Ken French expanded on this by adding size and style value to be able to explain better than 90% of the returns. So again, sharper tools in the portfolio, better explained. So if we go deeper into factors and learn more and more, what we've discovered as a firm who is not only a big believer in the power of factors and unlocking that for a portfolio, we've created the factor efficiency ratio, which is basically a purity indicator of factors. There are some skill factors, depending on the investor manager's clarity of definition, and there are some risk factors that are in a portfolio. So the skill factors look at the empirical evidence to support the factors, are returns consistent through time and across markets? Is the factor justified on theoretical grounds? And, and will that factor persist in the future? And looking at things like this is critical because not only once you've identified factors, you've got to have a constant review. Does it maintain its efficacy? So as I mentioned, the definition and depth of the factor expertise is critical. The other question I often get regarding this in a portfolio is, as factors gain popularity, is there an opportunity to arbitrage away the risk premium? Really interesting because it's becoming less homogeneous in behavior. Investors, while they're becoming smarter and having more access to information, they actually become more differentiated in their objectives and their constraints and their risk preferences. So factor premium actually might be more prevalent in the future for the market. And so identifying that and have clarity on that, working with a manager, how would I identify the risk? Have the manager quantify it for you. Oh, interesting. 
So, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. There's so many different factors then to look at, whether it's skill or risk or et cetera. But in the, in the proviso that not all factors are created equal, how can investors really understand what's in their portfolios? And you know what, Maha, this speaks to the strategy, the outcome, taxonomy, and, and the transparency and visibility into their portfolios. And I have a, a, actually a quick story on taxonomy. We were working with a $7 billion manager on a strategy that incorporated momentum and quality in the portfolio, and they were looking to do so and also have a tilt to small cap. And so we did a factor x-ray on their quite extensive momentum manager that actually defined the momentum cycle to be six months. So we define the momentum cycle to have an average of 39 months. So pause right there. Imagine two momentum managers in the same portfolio with wildly different definitions. So then we got into quality. And the manager who defined quality by prospectus said quality of earnings. So no wonder why Morningstar calls it the fuzziest of factors, right? We have lots of research and analytics around how we assess the ability of quality, right, of a company to have sustainable advance versus competition in the market and increase shareholder value over time and explain that in terms of risk and return in low correlation to other factors, right? So the differences and even definition were vast. So I'll tell you this. Why this is germane to the conversation we're having today, this was a sophisticated institutional manager. Wow. And so to have the average person to have access to more and more information, while investors are becoming more sophisticated, they truly have enormous due diligence to do when looking at these things. And it's on the onus of the investment manager to give you good questions to ask when looking at the portfolio and spend the time up front so you get the right outcomes. And this is in the institutional space and more intermediate space as well. What an incredible story. That's, that's fascinating that people can come at invest, for managers can come at it from such different perspectives. Wow, interesting. Yes, it, it really was a learning experience on definition alone. And, and um, as we talked through it, you know, we spent more than a half day on the definition of quality so we could come alongside and help them implement. But that clarity, I think that's a great example of how two firms could have wildly different definitions of a single factor. And I guess makes the case for looking at taxonomies a lot more, whether you're a manager or an investor or anyone and how you want to position yourself. Exactly. But uh, can I then ask you also about technology? Because, uh, I mean, technology is changing the landscape, as we know. We talk about it all the time, whether it's AI or data or anything else. But how will it change all these things that we're talking about today? Um, either passive approaches or active approaches, or even the way we look at things, for example, like taxonomies. Yes. Uh, so today we use technology in the portfolio management process and, and certainly in factor exposure. And there's great uses for AI and, and learning, like machine learning. Um, what we anticipate, though, it'll be better improved return forecasting, um, better risk assessment, including tail risks, Things like macroeconomic sensitivity analysis and improved attribution, which would certainly be help. Um, and all that is better aided by having more data and better tools like AI and machine learning. Um, however, there's still challenges, right? The volume of data is enormous and it's difficult for any firm or any entity to, to digest it all. 
Um, the quality of data isn't necessarily always great. In general, like the proliferation has been among low quality data, but there's still opportunity for upside and earning and better reporting. And AI and machine learning can, you know, uh, solve some of these data quality issues, but they certainly can't do them all, right? So, you know, what we use today AI technology for is the factor and risk assessment, the factor construction, better portfolio construction overall, like things like optimization and constraint attribution. And those are just to name a few. So um, I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to incorporate these in the portfolio and we get better and better as an industry with um, culling the data and getting better information. And that's exciting. It has wonderful implications for the use and application in portfolios and beyond. I'd love to ask you this question again in a decade and see. <laughs> the pace of change is so exponential. I'd love to see where we where we are. Yes. And, and, you know, if you just think about even how much in the past five years, there's been tremendous advances in technology. I, I think we have to step through how we can use it for the greater good and how we can get to better more quickly. Thank you so much. That was certainly a, a fantastic. And we explored some really interesting trends and themes there. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us. And thank you to everyone for listening. Remember to look out for the next episode of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. You can also subscribe so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK's SoundCloud channel or Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Marie. Thank you.